Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation and transplantation. You can always find us at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreaux. I'm Sarah Blakemore. And on today's episode of The Gifted Life, we'll be talking about a technology that will absolutely change the donation world as we know it. And we're going to talk about if you're overthinking how to stop it. Wait, what? I'll think about that. (laughs) All right. All that and more right here. Hang on. Here on the Gifted Life podcast, we are so pleased to be able to speak with Brandy Zofke. Hey, Brandy. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for coming on. Brandy is the Director of Lung Bioengineering, and I guess we'll start with that, Brandy. So what exactly is Lung Bioengineering? Lung Bioengineering is a company that is providing ex vivo lung perfusion to transplant programs, basically acting as an interim between taking lungs out of donor patients and being able to reassess them for suitability for transplant. So we gather all of this additional information and give it to transplant centers to make better informed decisions on whether or not they should use that particular organ in their recipient that's on the wait list. So I'll kind of just lay a little bit of the groundwork from an allocation standpoint. So uh, in general, of course, the the OPO, the the LOPAs, you know, of the world, we uh, if if we have a suitable donor, we evaluate every organ. Right. And uh, and we evaluate the lungs. Oftentimes the lungs have the most are the most susceptible organs uh, to the environment because obviously it's it's an open you know passage there and you can have pneumonia really easily and other things that take place especially with with brain death and brain injury and trauma and all those things so so from an acute standpoint from a temporary standpoint we see the most challenges with uh, with trying to get the lungs back to normal back to functioning that the way that they would before. The other big thing, you know, and, and I'm assuming, uh, and without speaking for you, Brandy, one of the other challenges is the fact that the lungs only have four hours from blood flow to blood flow, from the donor to the recipient. So I certainly saw the need, you know, and, and when I saw the, my first ex vivo machine uh, in person, I was like in awe It's from being yeah, a clinical Yeah, sounds amazing. Guy. So can you tell us a little bit, Brandy, so what kind of what was the biggest problem that you guys saw that needed to be solved? And uh, and tell me about kind of the origins of it. Yeah, of course. So right now in the United States, only about 20% of organ donors are lung donors, right? So that is an incredibly small percentage when you compare it to other organs like kidneys or livers, right? So how can um, technology help fill the gap um, how can and why? What is the reason that only 20% of these organs are being used? And you hit the nail on the head that you know there's clinical indications of why these lungs are 
much more delicate um, and more susceptible to injury from either resulting from the way that the donor passed away or even resulting from the mechanisms of trying to maintain life um, with being on prolonged ventilation. So, so one of the things that, um, that our program was aiming to do is how could we help give transplant centers information to make better decisions? So like, um, like Joey said, one of the problems is with cold ischemic time is after the lungs come out of the donor, there's no way to get any more information on those organs because they're cold and it's an urgent process of getting it out of one, out of the donor, putting it on ice, transporting it and getting it back into the recipient as quickly as possible. So what if instead you could kind of take a pause and gather more information, whether it's um, assessing how that lung is actually performing, getting um, the data to be able to do that, or even just creating a pause for logistical reasons to be able to provide flexibility back to the transplant center to be able to pull the transplant off. You know, everybody in the transplant world is well aware of the um, magic <laughs> that happens on every single case of getting the coordination of a donor and a recipient to even happen in the first place. But you add in confounding factors like questionable quality or, um, you know, weather or having to coordinate around the donor hospital, the recipient hospital, et cetera. Um, those things can really impact whether or not an organ is used. And utilizing ex vivo lung perfusion is a way to do that. Putting the lung on a perfusion circuit gathering information and seeing how and allowing time essentially for that organ to declare itself as yes, I am suitable for transplant or no, I'm not. And so how does a lung bioengineering even get started? Because this is all so incredible. So we knew there was a need. How did you guys choose to fill it? Yeah, and I think it helps by better understanding how lung bioengineering even came to be. Um, so just to give you a little bit of history, lung bioengineering is a subsidiary of United Therapeutics. And the, pres the um, CEO and chair of United Therapeutics is Martine Rothblatt. And in her previous life, she was actually the founder of what is now Sirius XM Radio. So you may be saying, okay. How does that connect? Sirius XM. <laughs> exactly. Like, how does that even happen? Well, unfortunately, um, Martine's daughter at a very young age was diagnosed with pulmonary arterial hypertension. And at the time, which actually I can say was 25 years ago, we just celebrated our 25th anniversary of United Therapeutics, but it was um, over 25 years ago. Um, there really weren't any um, medicines available for pulmonary arterial hypertension patients. And um, being a woman with resources, she went and, you know, sought out some medical experts and they're like, you know, there's just not a lot of options. She's going to need a lung transplant. So she created a foundation to find a cure for PAH. And the researchers essentially came back to her and were like, listen, there's a drug sitting on the shelf but no one is going to develop it because the cost is so high and the patient population is so small. And obviously, you know, not happy with that answer. So went back, got her PhD and basically started a biotech company. 
And, um, you know, as I mentioned, it's 25 years ago, but even more importantly, that was four FDA approved drugs that go specific to pulmonary arterial hypertension. And uh, I'm happy to report that, you know, her daughter works for our organization and has been on our medicines and is doing extremely well. Wow, what a great story. And, I'm, I'm like, have the chills. Right? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's really incredible. Um, and, and Mar, it kind of shows that I always say we're not your typical biotech company. We're very, you know, obviously passion driven, but even more importantly is that Martine didn't just stop there. So we now had these medicines, right? We have these four drugs that um, have been buying this patient population time, but it's still not a cure. The only cure for PAH right now is to get a lung transplant. So again, Martine being, a, you know, having access to, <laughs> to amazing resources, um, met up with some experts and said, you know, what is it that these big lung transplant programs in the world are doing that that they're being successful and they're able to utilize more organs and that really came back to ex vivo lung perfusion and she's like well okay well why aren't american transplant centers using this technology and the reality is is that they were using the technology um, there's multiple ways of doing ex vivo lung perfusion through different clinical trials um, there's an fda approved device now but the feedback that she was getting is how cumbersome it is to do this um, for your own transplant program. It takes a lot of people. It takes a lot of extra money. Um, it takes a lot of oversight to be able to do this. You know, the transplant center is responsible for going and getting the organ, right? And then they have to put the, the uh, organ into the recipient. So having to do this interim step um, would take up a lot of resources. And so she decided to basically create a almost a new class of healthcare provider and offer ex vivo lung perfusion to American centers without them having to lift a finger. So that's really how lung bioengineering started was trying to provide resources back to transplant programs so they wouldn't necessarily have to do it themselves, um, that lung bioengineering could support the transplant center by having these facilities with all of this additional data and be able to allow transplant centers to make better decisions for their patients. And that started, um, let's see here, back in 2004. 15 is when the idea of lung bioengineering was really coming to fruition with the operation of our first facility. And uh, just in fall of 2020, we opened our second facility. So we now have two facilities, um, one in Silver Spring, Maryland at our headquarters, United Therapeutics headquarters. And then we just opened our second facility down in Jacksonville, Florida. So you talk a lot about, you know, kind of reconditioning. So how exactly does the machine work, you know, just so people can understand? Yeah. Um, so we, with the technology that we use, we use an acellular perfusate, which means we actually do not use blood. We use a solution called Steen Solution made by the company Ex Vivo and um, use that to perfuse the organ. So 
in a roundabout way, the machine has a is composed of a ventilator and a perfusion circuit. So similar to like a heart lung, like a bypass circuit. So the lungs are connected um, via the left atrium and the pulmonary artery and fluid, this acellular perfusate flows into the pulmonary artery, circulates through the lungs and then comes back out and is recycled back through the circuit. And with this type of technology, we're actually removing the oxygen from the perfusate. So unlike in a, in a heart-lung machine, the idea is to oxygenate the lungs while um, the surgery is happening because they're acting as the lung. But what we're actually doing is removing the oxygen from the perfusate and assessing how the lung oxygenates. So we're able to see what the difference is between the, the perfusate going into the lung and coming out all while the lung is ventilating. Mm. That's amazing. So, so to picture this, you've got, a, you know, and at least the one I, that I had seen was like a, basically lungs in a, in a glass box, right? Mm. Or is it still, is it still like in it's, a glass it's box? It's plastic, but plastic. yeah, it looks like Pl- it's plastic. Right, yeah, right. big plastic dome. Yep. <laughs> so you've got it hooked up to a, a, a ventilator. So the lungs are expanding, mm-hmm. you know, back and forth. And then this, you know, basically perfusate like like what blood would be flowing in the same areas is absorbing the oxygen and they then they can test you know then you guys can test and see right uh how well the 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 lungs are oxygenating how well they're working based on the oxygenation in the perfusate am i right exactly exactly we're drawing gases on the lung as if it's like a patient so you're really taking away um you know we were talking about a little bit about um in the ICU, how lungs are so susceptible, right? So it's whether um, it was a, an injury that re- resulted in contusion, or maybe it was the fact that they've been on a ventilator so long. Um, it could be just from neurogenic pulmonary edema as a result of the cytokine storm that happens at, at brain death, right? So it's taking the lung out of that environment and putting it so you don't have any of these other organ systems that you're worried about. Because the other problem with um, having been a former procurement transplant coordinator myself, one of the other problems is the delicate balance of trying to maximize the potential of the lung while not compromising the other other organs. The the kidneys, right? You know, I mean, mostly you've got, you've got the kidney doctors who want fluid, 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 fluid. fluid. We've got to keep those kidneys flowing. And you've got the lung doctors who are like, dry the patient up, dry the patient, take the fluid (laughs) off. We don't need that much fluid. So from us, as you know, as she mentioned, being a procurement coordinator, you know, so, so we have to fight that. Like we have to try to figure out that balance. And it's very challenging, especially if a patient has somewhat compromised organs in, in you know, especially kidneys or, or lungs, if they're compromised in any way. And so especially the kidneys. So, so to be able to take it out of that environment where it's completely independent. So you don't have to worry about, you know, drawing out the kidneys where you have kidney damage, you know, because kidneys like fluid. So you don't have to worry about that. So you can dry out these lungs and and focus just on that, you know, as, as a completely separate organ, like it's not part of anything else. Is I think for I, I would be so excited if I worked honestly. Like to me, that that stuff excites me. Like to see how much improvement you can make 
when you don't have to worry about every other organ system. For sure. And the reality is, is what we're doing right now is actually what I consider to be kind of the boring stuff, right? I mean, what we're talking about right now is, you know, like, yeah, it's great. <laughs> it, it works. You know, we're, we're able to expand, you know, some of the thought processes and we're really in the business, I always say, of, of changing the culture of donation and transplantation to kind of shake things up a little bit. But what I'm excited about is really what the future of this technology will allow for with therapeutic, with the potential for therapeutic interventions, right? What if you could actually fix the lungs? Right. What if you could, you know, cure a, a pneumonia? Um, what if you could do that? Think about all the, you know, that 80% of lungs that currently aren't used, how impactful that could essentially be. Right. You know, so, so and you kind of touched on it, being on a ventilator, that you, your body is not accustomed, lungs aren't accustomed to being for having forced air into them like you you normally they work by negative pressure so uh kind of passively and and you've got this positive pressure ventilator forcing air and so often you know they don't react as well and you'll see it it's a lot easier for pneumonias and stuff to set in and that for me at least and i, I know this is kind of you know off the cuff but i would i would imagine that's probably our biggest battle uh, that we that we see on the on the recovery side is pneumonia itself. Like mm -hmm. you're in yep. a, you're Agree. in a, you're in an ICU mm. with patients uh, around that also have many other microorganisms, and it's so easily easily transmitted sometimes easier than people realize. You know to to you know to to set in. So so to to be able to you know looking into the future to be able to mm. fix that would amazing. be amazing. Yeah. Which is the ultimate goal, right, is to increase the amount of lung transplants to save more lives. And I think that's really what this is doing. Exactly. We hope that, you know, being able to do it safely, right, that's the thing. Um, you know, with a kidney transplant and not anything against kidney transplants because they're <laughs> obviously very important. But if the kidney fails, the patient goes back on dialysis, mm -hmm. right? right? Lungs, you don't have that flexibility when the lung fails, the patient likely will will not survive it. Um, you know, they do do repeat lung transplants, but that is, you know, from an immunologic perspective, um, that surgery, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big risk. And the survival is already in general not the best for, you know, when you're comparing it to like a kidney, for example. So it, this is a way that hopefully will allow, again, those transplant centers to make better decisions, better informed decisions for their patients. So how does that process work? Does a transplant center accept donor lungs and you get involved with the pump or are you already in contact with transplant centers about your services? Yeah, that's actually um, very much how it works the majority of the time. Um, the organ procurement organization is, you know, assessing the, the donor and they are electronically notifying all of these transplant programs. And the transplant program should be looking at it and saying, do I want to take this lung to transplant? If no, then should I consider using ex vivo lung perfusion, which I have access to through one way or another? And at that time, uh, the transplant center, if they're even thinking about using lung bioengineering, they usually just give us a call and say, hey, 
we're intending to take this drug to transplant, but we wanted to give you a heads up just so, so um, you're aware. But there's those other situations where maybe they flew, they flew into LOPA, right? And they're in the OR because they're intending to take these direct to transplant. And they open the chest and they're like, oh my, not what I was expecting. Based on all of this information that the OPOs provided, CTs, chest x-rays, blood gases, um, all of this, you know, the eyes and O's, et cetera. Um, this is not what I thought it was going to look like. I'm not overly excited about it, but I want to get some more information. They can actually pull the trigger at that point um, and, and facilitate the recovery of the organ and sending it to one of our facilities at that point in time. So really anytime they're even considering it, um, they can trigger the referral. We're a 24-7, 365 business. Um, and so we're, we're there to support our transplant center partners. It would be great, you know, knowing, understanding the allocation side, of course, as, as you do. It would be great. There's so many times that I, I, I know this, these are good lungs. They might have a bad story. It might have something to it. But I know in general, like these are good lungs. I've, like I said, I've been working, you know, doing this for 20 years. And there are no takers, you know, for one reason so or another. Frustrating. It, it, yeah. So you can understand the frustration that, that I would have, you know, that I have on a regular basis on this. It would be great that if we could just send them to you guys. You know, when we see when we go down the list and we're having trouble placing uh, then to send to you guys and you guys be able to fix whatever that little oh, nuance, yeah. that little issue is to, to show a little bit of improvement, whether like you mentioned with the fluid, mm. you know, maybe we've well, got your timing. Your timing is impeccable because though the majority of time the referrals do come in from the transplant center, we also just recently launched a way for OPOs to direct those types of lungs to our facilities for, out, for additional allocation while the lungs are in transit. Um, again, we are, um, we're looking at ways to really shake things up. And if the OPO feels that the lung would be suitable, so, those, so a perfect example is a DCD, right? So right. family exactly. says, um, yeah. I, I want my loved one to be a DCD donor, but you're going to go to the OR right now. <laughs> you're going to go to the, uh, you know, because of one reason or another, and it is the OPO scramble of whatever it takes to try to make it happen. But the reality is, is to find a recipient, facilitate getting that transplant program to the donor hospital takes too much time. And so that's where a lot of opportunity dies at that very point. Um, they don't even, it's just, okay, we're just going to go for kidneys, right? But what if instead you recover the organs, put them on a plane, send them to lung, you know, have them en route to lung bioengineering, and then you start your allocation and you're allocating while they're in transit. And then while the lungs are on EVLP, you have a, a transplant center that might be interested and it would buy the transplant center enough time potentially to find the, to get their recipient in. Because that's the, that's the crux of this, right? For those rapid placement type situations, you know, obviously there's the whole allocation and getting the offers out, but it's also that the, that the transplant center has to have a recipient right there, ready to go. <laughs> and, you know, with COVID, that's not necessarily the case anymore. These patients aren't 
you know, they're having to travel in because, you know, transplant centers aren't always asking them to relocate because of, you know, the, because of COVID. Um, or they themselves don't have, the patient themselves doesn't have the resources to pick up and move to another city to be close to a yep. transplant right. center. Right. Yep. So, so just to, for the, for the listeners, you know, she mentioned DCD and we've spoken about the DCD in multiple podcasts, but donation after circulatory death, um, you know, it's it's when a family, it's when a patient, in general, it's oftentimes a patient who is has a severe brain injury or some other issue that they're requiring life support, and they no longer want to live on on life support, and uh, and those are the ones, obviously, uh, about now it's up to about twenty percent of the of the recoveries of the donations take place this way as opposed to the more traditional brain death uh, donation uh, donation after after brain neurological death so uh so this happens so the kidneys have 24 hours of, of of no blood flow that they that they can survive and we have kidney pumps that can extend that in a little bit longer but what she mentioned was is exactly what would happen if a family says we, we, you can do it you know recover but we we want to go now that's exactly what we do we plan our team to go we go and recover the kidneys we put the kidneys on a pump and we allocate the kidneys only whereas this would be a giant breakthrough. This would be, I, I can see. No, it's more lives saved. It's a, more a opportunity, ton. like you're I, saying. It's, it's, I can see a, a ton, like it's, the, the, the possibilities are endless here mm-hmm. uh, by, by having this as a resource, as a possibility to be able to call you guys and say, look, we're going in recovery. And, and you know, a lot, of, a lot of the OPOs have a recovery surgeon um, you know, it's not it's not as e- easily available having a, a, a thoracic, a lung, or, or heart surgeon available. But a lot of us uh, in the OPO world do have heart and lung recovery surgeons. Most of the recovery surgeons that we do have are abdominal. You know, uh, that that are are on call for us. But most of us still, or a lot of us at least, have someone that they can call in a pinch that would come and recover uh, heart and lungs. And to be able to have that. And, and time that and call you guys and send the lungs, you know, for uh, the reconditioning and, and you know, to, to put it on the ex vivo EVLP, as you mentioned, ex vivo lung perfusion. Uh, and, and then start offering and, and finding that, you know, it just changes the, you know, the whole timing. It, it just completely changes the game. And I, I applaud you guys for, for being forward thinking, for, for being able to, to put that out there. We certainly... Uh, on our end, we'll we'll be contacting you. I yeah. can tell you. <laughs> I saw a head shaking. Yes, uh, yeah, yes, yes, all good information. You know, yes, and especially yes. <laughs> that you guys are in Florida. It's not not a very you know far uh, flight for us. Uh, so to to be able to have that as an option is is uh, incredible. Yeah, we're looking forward to being able to expand this. Um, you know, I mentioned a couple of times that we're, you know, obviously in the business of ex vivo lung perfusion, but what I always say our real business is, is changing cultures. So changing the culture of transplant centers in just looking at a piece of paper, um, you know, looking at their donor net screen to evaluate an organ, right? So right now they do that and they say yes or no, and then that's it. Um, instead, why not, why not take a look at it in the OR? Why not get more information to make, to make those decisions? So there's that. Um, it's also the business of, you know, interoperative declines. Um, instead of just declining it, again, using that as an opportunity to, to get more information. 
But then there's this whole other part with the OPOs. Um, and, you know, you know, back when I was a coordinator, it's been a while, but <laughs> when I was a coordinator, we had, you know, this rule out plan. So, you know, you're, you go in and you're going to assess all eight organs and um, based on X, Y, and Z criteria, you may not even run a list. So how can we empower OPOs? And one of my colleagues, Sam Popa, I'll give him a little shout out, <laughs> coined this phrase of turning a no into a maybe. How do we shift the mindset on both the OPO side and the transplant center side to really think about, okay, maybe no to direct to transplant, but maybe with EVLP. So how can we leverage that on both sides to create a push from the OPOs to push lungs into to the transplant centers and then the pull of getting the transplant centers to consider those organs? That's that's amazing. That that is it's a, it is a cultural change, you know, and it's it's everyone changing their mindset like you mentioned from no to maybe. You know, I can tell you that's what we do here. <laughs> this yeah. they, they you know, if there's we have a very I don't know if aggressive is the right way, but we 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 look at at every organ as maybe it has a bad story, but there's there's potential that it can it can benefit someone. You know, so we un, you know, until pretty much the list is exhausted, you know, we're pushing on on each and every organ uh, just just in case there's that one patient, that one transplant center for that one patient, you know, that would be a perfect match in this this donor you know, would, would be the perfect match for that recipient, especially for that donor and for that family so that, you know, we've exhausted all, all of our opportunities. So thank you very much for, for, for providing us even more opportunities here. And I, I completely agree with, with your mindset. You know, that's certainly something that we embrace here at LOPA. And hopefully we can, you know, see that spread throughout the industry. Yeah, for sure. And let me be clear that this is not magic. This isn't a fix for all organs. Um, you know, a consolidated infected organ is still a consolidated infected organ on EVLP. Um, you know, it's not going to fix it today. Today, things are not going to be fixed, but today it is going to give them more information without all of the confounding factors of other organ systems and, um, and you know, just the donor in general. It's going to remove all of those and allow, um, you know, the lung to declare itself. But what the future of this technology holds is what those other opportunities are. So I, I think that it will be magic someday. I hope that, you know, I hope that, you know, lung bioengineering gets to be part of the reason, um, especially with um, United Therapeutics has an entire division devoted to organ manufacturing. Where, um, so I told you a little bit about Martine's story and how she, you know, have, we have these medicines and we're buying patients time. And now she took resources and said, how can she influence more patients getting a lung transplant when they need one? Right. But she didn't stop there either. She's like, okay, so this is still, um, you know, a requirement. It's still limiting the number of ultimately the number of transplants that can happen. And there's 600,000 people with end-stage chronic lung disease. So what if you could manufacture the organ and take away a lot of these other issues? Um, so we actually have multiple um, areas within our organization that are looking at just that. How could we actually influence all patients 
getting a lung transplant when they need it and not having to wait. Um, so some really incredible things that I feel that are coming out of United Therapeutics in our, in our future. Well, Brandy, I know I have learned a lot here, taken lots of notes. I'm excited for the future, and I'm confident that you will be back on The Gifted Life, right, Jeff? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> we have so much more to pick your brain about, but thanks for your time. If people were listening and they're like, I just want to learn more, I want to see more, how can they do that? Yeah, uh, they can visit our website at lungbioengineering.com. And if they have questions, they can submit uh, through there, and we'll get them connected to the right people to learn more. All right, Ms. Brandy, thanks for your time. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, it's that time. We take a moment for mental health. Yes, and this time... I don't know what to think about it because I'm always overthinking. So oh, I'm stop curious. It. <laughs> I'm curious as how you're going to get me to stop overthinking. It's so simple, but I mean, we all do it, right? Does it happen yeah. to you? Oh, absolutely. I overthink a lot of stuff. I just got an email from a professor and I've been panic sweating about it for like yeah. 20 yeah. minutes, <laughs> but it's not a big deal. He's just checking on me. Um, <laughs> so we're going to be talking about overthinking today. And one way to phrase overthinking could be rumination. But particularly today, we're going to talk about rumination that's negative. So mm -hmm. the things that give you anxiety, because not all rumination is negative. Thinking things through is a really good thing. Being process oriented, problem solving is a really good thing. But this is more about rumination that is causing you stress, anxiety, and it's taking away from your daily activities like going to sleep at night. Uh, Lori and I talked a lot about that, how we do a lot of our negative That's overthinking at night. my best overthinking time is when my head hits the pillow. Mm -hmm. Yes. And sometimes it's it's like a conversation that I'm having with someone and I say something very innocent, but did they did they take it the yes. right way? Right. Did I hurt their feelings? Oh, I hope it didn't hurt their feelings. Like, how can I make it better? And it very innocent, very innocent. But then it starts spiraling. Yes. And that, no one should feel that way. And especially if it's getting in the way of work, sleep, your time with your family and friends. We don't want that. We don't want this negative rumination. So the first thing to do is to just recognize it. Mm -hmm. Recognize that you're negatively ruminating on something. Um, it can help to have a partner who helps you recognize it, but really you got to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to have an internal dialogue that's saying, this isn't healthy. This isn't happy. This isn't bringing positivity and realistic conversations to mind. So you so have to recognize it. So I can't just say, Ashley, stop overthinking it. Like that doesn't work. No, it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> does it work for you? Not every really. Wife no, every wife loves to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone Calm down. Stop overthinking it. That's right. Those are just magic words. Calm down and stop overthinking. <laughs> you have to internally recognize what's negative for you. So someone pointing it out for you is great, but one you have the first step is to know yourself this isn't helpful and it's getting in the way of a lot of things. So yeah. I need to fix it. And you know, it doesn't help sometimes social media because mm. we had a friend who just said, hey, here's what happened with my kid. Very innocent. And then it was parenting advice. You should have done this. Boom, 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 boom. And so my husband's like, why, do, why are you keeping reading the comment? Like, why wouldn't you stop that? Because it was like negative. And then yeah. it would make her think, 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 think. <laughs> yeah. Think. And I was like, oh, that's so horrible. Delete it. Just delete it. Let's start over. <laughs> yeah. And when it causes, you know, you to 
form resentment for yourself or for others, that's that's not great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Overthinking something that's going to cause you to resent or feel angry, guilty, shame, all of those things. We don't want that. We're trying to cut that out, guys. <laughs> right. Be good humans. So recognize it. Number one, recognize it in yourself. Mm-hmm. Number two, simply shift away from it. And you can do that in two different ways. You can do a simple distraction where you read a book, go for a walk, do something creative. Drink a cocktail. Have a cocktail. <laughs> Talk about something with, you know, a friend that has nothing to do with what you're ruminating mm-hmm. about. Right. Just shift away from it and do it in simple ways. Um, the second way you can do it is focus on problem solving. So when you are ruminating negatively, try to think of a solution to a problem. Because a lot of times these aren't real problems right. when you're ruminating negatively. But maybe if you think of a simple solution for it, it really helps. And then you feel great. Mm-hmm. We all know that feeling when you finally solve a problem. Yep. It just relieves a lot of stress and tension. So, Or something else comes up and I start on that one. This one's forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, I love it. All right. So stop overthinking. Joe, you taking notes? I got it. Okay. Uh, you have a topic you want Sarah to cover? Email us, info at thegiftedlife.org. In our question and answer segment, Today, this one's for you, Lori. Mm-hmm. So can I donate my body to science by registering at the OMV? So the simple answer is no. But out in the community, we are getting this question um, a lot. How do I donate my body to science? So in Louisiana, which if you live here, then kudos to you, right? (laughs) So in Louisiana, if you go to lopa.org, that's our website under donation facts. There is a tab for anatomical donation. So if you click on that, there are the links to the forms that you'll need. Um, so there's pre-planning, you guys. You know, we had talked about this. Um, you have to pre-plan, plan ahead of time. Um, so that's where you go if you're in Louisiana. Now, if you're outside of Louisiana, we recommend that you contact your organ procurement organization. Um, they can help direct you uh, to the centers um, that you need to turn to for that to ask more in detail. All right, guys, if y'all have a question for us, give us a call at 504-648-3477. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today's hero is Sheila Fields Dupar. And we learn about Sheila from her family. My mother was always the light that shined bright in our family. And on the day she was hospitalized in 2019, I didn't know the last time I saw her drive away with the sun shining bright that our lives would change forever. In March of 2019, my mother passed away and she was an organ donor. We have received many letters and cards from the different families that have been helped by my mother choosing the gift of life upon her passing. May God bless each and every family that has suffered a loss and those that have been helped on the other side of that loss. And now we pause and say thank you to Sheila for the gift of life. And 
that'll do it for episode 167 of The Gifted Life. Thanks for listening, everyone. And remember, you can register as an organ, tissue, or eye donor anytime. Registerme.org. Very special thanks for Brandy Zofke for discussing lung bioengineering and just the, the sheer impact that it, it can have, that it's been having on donation, mm-hmm. and of course, the potential that it can in oh, the future. The future. I love it. The best place to find us, guys, is at our website, thegiftedlife.org. You can listen to all of our episodes there or anywhere you like to listen, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. If you do listen on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating, review, and let us know how you like the show. It really helps others find our podcast. And if you're on social media, you can like our page on Facebook. It's the Gifted Life Podcast. You can follow us on both Twitter and Instagram at Gifted Life Pod. We really appreciate you listening, and we hope that you go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. We are all one big team. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Carraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez.